From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Google announces checking accounts are coming in 2020, Facebook launches Facebook Pay, and only the rich can visit Santa. All this and much more on today's show. 11FS is taking part in the 2020 British Bank Awards, and we need your help to win. We took home Consultancy of the Year for 2019 earlier this year, and we'd love to get it for a second year running. Not just that, we're also taking part in the new award category, Pioneer of the Year. So if you love the work that we do, head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020. So bit.ly forward slash 11FS2020 and nominate 11FS for the Consultancy and Pioneer Awards. It would mean the world to us. Okay, let's go on with today's show. So welcome to episode 375 of Fintech Insider. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Simon Taylor. How are you today, Simon? Yeah, really good. Been having a lot of fun doing a client workshop all day, uh, running around. Lots and lots of post-its. Excited for some (laughs) fintech news. Brilliant. Um, As always, we are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests, all of whom are making their Fintech Insider news debuts. So we have Will Carmichael, CEO of Rooster Money. How are you today, Will? Very good. Great to be here. Thank you for coming. Uh, We have Smriti Vikari, Executive Director for Fintech and Strategic Partnerships at Visa Europe. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Brilliant. Thank you for coming along. Thank you very much for having me. And last, by no means least, we have Roisin Levine, Head of Banks at Flux. How are you today, Roisin? I'm very, very well. Thank you so much. Uh, Right. Well, without further ado, let's get started. So the first story today is that Google will offer checking accounts in partnership with banks starting next year. So Google is the latest big tech company to make a move into banking and personal financial services. The company is gearing up to offer checking accounts to consumers starting as early as next year. Google is calling the project, and if this is cash as a pun, or like cachet in the French way, mm-hmm. whichever way, I, you take it as you will. Um, <laughs> and it'll partner with banks and credit unions to offer checking accounts with the banks handling all financial and compliance activities related to the accounts. Uh, so there's been a lot of debate about this on Twitter. Is it actually a bank? Is it not a bank? Is this just another data play, etc., etc.? Uh, who wants to go first? I can. Please do. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, what it comes down to really is, uh, yeah, big tech playing in banking and um, the kind of conversation we've all had in the office probably is, is who do you trust? Um, I think we had a few polls going on, you know, is it Facebook? Is it Google? You know, who would you bank with? Um, and there's not an awful lot of information on this one. Um, it sounds like they are saying they're going to add some analytics to it. There might be some loyalty aspects and offers which could interest people. Um, but I think other than that, we are a little bit short on details from what I can mm-hmm. see. Um, I did see a extra article and it said, the account is slated to launch early next year. And I thought, slated already? That's a bit harsh. <laughs> and I realized it's a typo. It's like probably a Freudian one, but never mind. I can say that that does happen with an extra on occasion. As somebody who uh, used to work as a journalist and is like obsessed with editing, um, yeah. I do pick these things up much more than most people would. Journal life. I think the, the interesting thing for me behind the scenes was a couple of things. One, um, the initial financial partners that Google are working with include Citigroup and Stanford Federal Credit Union. So they're working with a very large bank and a teeny, teeny, tiny bank hmm what's going on behind the scenes there the neighborhood one yeah (laughs) well what i think is interesting about the banking partnerships is for so long people have said you know big tech versus banks and this is such an interesting way for them to sort of come into the financial services world into the banking world where effectively each party is playing their roles the banks are kind of playing the rails Uh, they're taking care of their regulatory and compliance tasks and google as you say, we're still short of details, and it'd be interesting to see what's compelling from a consumer perspective that they're going to offer. But they're, in theory, going to add the value-added services around it. So it's a really interesting partnership, and, and it may be a model that we'll continue to see in the future with both fintech and big tech. I mean, I think the interesting thing for me is somebody who uses Google Pay on a regular basis is the loyalty aspect. Instantly, my ears prick up because it is a nightmare currently trying to use loyalty cards through Google Pay. You can add them. Um, we're in the UK, so I've got my boots card just like a chemist and I've got my Marks and Spencers like a grocery card on there but you have to open the app zoom into the card and then like try and get it to scan on like the self-checkout um you know barcode reader and oh by the time I'm finished I'm like yeah whatever and so I actually end up losing a lot of points that way unless I've got my purse with me which I don't very often so if you can start incorporating all those things to be able to my Google Pay automatically adds my loyalty points and then you start getting things like oh my Boots vouchers come straight to my wallet or my Google Pay and then when I pay at Boots it's automatically deducted all that kind of good stuff I I might do it 
And probably not for my salary. I don't know. It's weird. We still have that thing, don't we, where it's like, secondary account. I'm going to keep my salary separate. <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, this is the world that Flux kind of plays in mm-hmm. ourselves because our view is that if you link your cards or whatever, you know, whatever you're using and you have Flux enabled, then you seamlessly collect loyalty points. So we know that people do that. Mm-hmm. They kind of think, oh, it's too much faff. I'm not getting another card out. And it's like, if you can make that seamless and if Google can do it, then yeah, they, they're going to win. This goes back to the uh, kind of 2011 company called TrialPay. Uh, Alex Rampell was the CEO, is now a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And uh, their original vision was closing the redemption loop. This idea that all the way from advertising right through to purchase and then back through to discovery again, there was a loop that was broken in the middle and the broken bit was the payment. And when you're a merchant, a payment is a fee, it's a cost. So you're always going to try and reduce the fee as low as possible. But new customers are a price worth paying. I will pay to acquire new customers as a merchant and I'll pay to convert them. So if I can have the data about the payment that have succeeded, I can see that that advertising did not only get somebody to your page, that it actually converted. And then I can change the the price at which this advertising runs for. So for Google, it's always been very much a data play. Yeah. And I think I thought two user cases um, immediately that would help me. And and life is is G Suite integration. So B2B, wouldn't it be great if your whole company expenses could run through that? That would that would solve it for our company. Um, and, you know, already in Chrome, uh, I can pre-populate my payments on on an online transaction. And, and Google's made that seamless. I just have to remember my CVC. So I think, um, you know, there's a big opportunity to act as a distribution network for that. And I think what's interesting is they really have to design this around the consumer because I agree with you, it's totally a data play, but right now it still feels like technology looking for a problem to solve. So mm-hmm. would love to see what they actually do. And your point about trial pay, it's interesting, that was years ago. Mm-hmm. That problem has still not been fixed at scale. I completely agree. And, and it's really interesting that all these big companies throwing billions at it. They've been trying to fix it for more than a decade. I remember money 2020 and 2012, this was one of the big topics. When will big tech get their data play right? And I think it's still not been solved. And I think we've seen you know, the some progress in terms of uh, the, the X pays, the Android pay, the Apple pay, and so on. But we haven't seen the progress necessarily in the, the bit that they wanted to fix. Um, and it feels like now uh, moving deeper down the stack from the payment to the checking account is is still trying to solve that. But in doing so, you realize that having a checking account and delivering that to consumers is hard. And it's like they're coming from solving their problem, not the consumer's problem. But they do say um, that they're talking about, uh, you know, offer product advantages, including that, that loyalty program. But we're not clear if it will start to show fees. Are they going to do some basic PFM? Mm-hmm. You can kind of get that as a consumer now. So they're just another provider of that. So the why Google, why now question, I think, remains unanswered. Well, maybe we can answer the why now question by mm-hmm. talking about our next story, which is um, Facebook launches Facebook Pay. Uh, so Facebook is launching a new payment system this week, appropriately named Facebook Pay. Um, it's starting with Facebook and Facebook Messenger, uh, only in the US this week, um, with rollouts to Instagram and WhatsApp planned at some point, but they've not given us a timeline for this. Um, there's also supposedly an international launch coming, but again, we don't quite know when. Um, you'll be able to use Facebook Pay to send money to friends, shop for goods, or donate to fundraisers. Um, don't get confused with Libra, which is something else I'm sure Simon will give us a great deal of detail on. Um, but the point being that Facebook has now has two... I will I will give you time. Sorry, Simon. I will let you explain. <laughs> I was just going to say, the point is that um, where we look at, you know, Google's going into this checking account piece... Facebook is moving very much onto the payment side in in several different ways. I guess they've got eggs in many baskets. Again, going back 10 years, Facebook has been trying to do this for a while. They've had e-money licenses in many countries for quite some time. And they've had a couple of cracks at launching payments inside Messenger, payments inside. And it, it, it never seems to get the traction that Facebook want it to get. And this is the latest go at that. So it, this is an and, not an all. They're doing Calibra and they're doing this. Uh, Calibra and Libra. And of course... Uh, Yes, the service is separate to Calibra and Libra, Calibra being a new wallet from Facebook that, of course, integrates to uh, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger. But Libra actually now being an association of 20 organizations, including Uber, Lyft, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other companies. And 
with quite some regulatory ire. Uh, we won't go into that because you can find out more about that on Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes now. Um, there's a bunch of interesting stuff about this on its, in its own right, I'm sure. I wondered if this story was was that big because my understanding was that Facebook already allow you to send money through Messenger. So it already has that functionality right now. But what they're just saying is, in future, we'll have this available for WhatsApp and Instagram. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, so far as, so far as I understand it, um, and this has been talked about, I think it was even talked about F8, which is the big Facebook conference last year. Um, it is that idea of like seamlessly connecting all their different, um, you know, the, the, all the different brands. And again, from what I understand, um, all those brands have very different back ends because obviously WhatsApp and Instagram have been bought. So the reason it's taken them a while to get to this point is that they're having to sort of unknot everything at the back end. Um, so we, we may have expected to have seen it sooner because Instagram has trialed Instagram pay. Um, in some parts of the world, WhatsApp, you can sort of request and send payments. But I think it's this about uh, this um, brand... I don't know, unification. So if you look at the way that we were just saying that Google and the G Suite, you know, you already use Google for XYZ, so why wouldn't you use it for a a bank as well? If with Facebook you're using Instagram and you're using WhatsApp and you're using Facebook Messenger, um, then it kind of gives it more utility, I guess. And the other thing to point out, which people... I think sometimes don't know, if whilst Facebook Messenger is very widely used in the US and a few other places, in most of the rest of the world, it's WhatsApp or Instagram. Yeah. So they, Facebook Messenger, you know, I, I don't know many people in the UK still have it. So kind of by bringing all these brands together, it gives them a much broader, uh, potentially international audience. I, I totally agree. I think it's a really exciting move um, for Facebook to sort of unify all of these different brands. I think they have done a number of different experiments across the world. Some have been ex- successful, some haven't, but they, that's what they're famous for, failing fast. And by unifying all these brands, they can really unlock a lot of the potential that's still left on the table in terms of advertising revenue. You think mm-hmm. about how much more they can do with Instagram by being able to have sort of one payments mark across all their brands. It's it's really interesting. And I do think there's something different now about the timing with uh, the growth of real-time payments as well as mm-hmm. with open banking that will enable them to do this in a much easier way than perhaps we had in the past. So um, we're quite excited about it. it also, from from Mar- if you think about just from a visa perspective, markets that are really high cash usage, if you think about Southern Europe, for example, Italy, uh, Spain, you, you think about markets like that, these are market-moving type of initiatives. People will much likely, more li- likely be... Y- y- much be more much more likely to use uh, digital payments when it comes from a platform like Instagram rather than like an issuer by issuer sort of cash displacement initiative. So for us, we're very excited about it. I do wonder if there is um, a brand question though as well. I mean, I know that there's so there's a few things to pick apart. Like one is that Facebook has not got bra- great brand image at the moment, or it certainly its brand image has has declined from its peak, shall we say? Um, are people are you going to trust you know Facebook to handle their money and move their money? But to the flip side of that, how many people actually know that Instagram and WhatsApp are owned by Facebook? And if they put that payments mark on it, is that actually going to be detrimental to them? Because all of a sudden people will go, oh, my God, it's owned by Facebook? Yeah. I, I don't want to be part of that. They're, so, su- they're suggesting a powered by Facebook sort of mm. mark a- across all of it. They've which, got a new font. I mean. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it, it, it chaps at you now. It's all in caps. Um, and they're, they're shouting a lot of things at the moment, trying to get away from, as you say, mm. some of the, the arguably, I, I hate to say this if you work at, work at Facebook and you're listening, but a toxic brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see this in how often um, policymakers and regulators are trying to pull Facebook in front of uh, the, the the sort of Senate. Interestingly, I've often said that Facebook, when they um, uh, had the Cambridge Analytica stuff to policymakers, they sort of became the scary clown. They became that thing of nightmares. Then when they did Libra, they also became a scary spider. And then it became like the scary clown spider when you put the two things together. It just just became too much for people to handle. So is this going to be something people trust? especially when payments is such a last mile problem. There are so many different payment types and the enemy for a lot of this is is cash. So how am I displacing all of those different payment types in all of those different markets when there are giant networks like Visa and others, but that have not dominant coverage, but some coverage. And as you get into emerging markets, it gets even more last mile-y. So Facebook will have to integrate and have. there's not going to be one payment type to rule them all. And because, you know, we've had the G and the F, um, it's time for an A. So the next story is that Apple Card tweets lead to Goldman gender discrimination probe. So Ruby on the Rails creator, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, David Heinemeyer Hansen, 
Jackson complained that Apple gave him 20 times the credit limit his wife got. He didn't disclose their individual uh, incomes on Twitter, but he did suggest that the two shared a lot of their finances, and he noted that his wife has a better sort of traditional credit score than he does. Um, he also alleges that Goldman raised his wife's credit limit after the tweets went viral. Um, Hansen said he hoped that the uh, the tweets would spark conversations about the biases of black box algorithms. Uh, Goldman and Apple are delegating credit assessment to a black box, says Hansen. It's not gender discrimination intent, but a gender discrimination outcome. So this is another one that's had lots of different takes on it. So, you know, there's Hansen's take, but a lot of other people have said, you know, when you're doing um, when you're doing credit limits, you take all sorts of different things into account. You know, just because he and his wife have very similar finances doesn't mean that she's got something in her background that maybe it's picked up. Is it, you know, looking at spending habits? Is it making assumptions like that? Um, and then at the just after this had happened, a story came out from, um, it was in Fin Extra, but I believe it was a recent study that said, actually, if you include gender, if you disaggregate the data and you do include gender, women actually come out better off. So it's been, I think what it's done is spark a lot of conversations, A, around black box algorithms and B, about gender. Um Take whichever angle you like. <laughs> yeah, it, it's never a great story, is it, to have a gender bias come out, especially with a yeah, so so much publicity. And there was it wasn't just one tweet; there was multiple quite high-profile people, obviously saying, "Oh, this happened to us." Well, um, I think the thing that that probably is the problem is more the opaqueness, as you mm-hmm. said. Um, if it was a straightforward, well, we know how the algorithm works, and it works on income, then it's kind of understandable and you go well okay that's how it works but I think the fact that it feels like maybe it's unanswered has then caused people to become almost a little bit more wary of it um, and potentially it's it's made a bigger story so I'm not quite sure how they're going to handle that but yeah they didn't handle it great to start with, I can tell you that much. Some of the, if you want to go and see the pinned tweet from Goldman Sachs, it was, um, here's, you know, in a hole, here's a spade, dig it deeper. Yeah. It's interesting. There's something about reputational risk that, that um, is, is the term that would strike fear to anybody that works in financial services. But if you're in tech, you know, rep risk is something that now is only just becoming the norm post-Cambridge Analytica. But like if you've worked in financial services, as you try to get anything done, reputational risk is one of those things that's so hard to quantify and yet has so much impact when something like this happens. Um, and you never know what's going to cause it. And it can be something as simple as your, as your credit rules and, and, and this can, can absolutely blow up. And, and I think big tech is learning that even though somebody else is the bank behind the scenes, if they're putting their brand on it as a positive, then their brand gets the blowback, even if somebody else's credit scoring algorithm is the reason and why this has come out. So there's lessons there for sure. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating expanding across what does this mean with AI if we're in this back spot environment and we're nudging behavior and decisions that there aren't clear audit trails for. Mm-hmm. And and how do we pull that back? And actually, you can you can change the market and people's access to credit. And it has all those, those wider implications for, for, for us. I, um, I, to build on that, I absolutely agree. There's an issue of transparency and it really begs the question about AI. I have mixed feelings about this one because, of course, I believe that um, there there is an issue with gender bias and other, all sorts of bias across AI. In fact, AI is a way to sort of just kind of mathematically code what's kind of happening in mm-hmm. society, it right? So from humans, right? we need to understand that and we need to get to the bottom of that. And I love that we're having this conversation. On the other hand, I feel I feel frustrated when when data is taken out of context and sometimes sensationalized. And I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that that's necessarily what happened here, but there were many people that went through the same process where, you know, their wife actually did better. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so transparency would be a great conversation to have. And it's it's good that we're talking about this. But sometimes when we we sensationalize these things, we actually distract from 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 some of the other bigger problems that are are happening. And it's an inherent human bias in that the story about one person is often a lot more... uh, sensational than the story about a group of people mm-hmm. because we can't quantify numbers in the same way. If I say there is you know, a disaster that has affected 100,000 people, that might not impact you nearly as much as seeing that one person who's walking away in the mental image that that creates because you can emotively relate to it. Uh, and so that whole sort of explainability point of, uh, of AI algorithms, when you zoom out and you see that maybe it's better for gender bias, still almost doesn't matter because you've still got this one 
story that sort of captures you. It's interesting to me, so the um, Information Commissioner's Office uh, in the UK and the Financial Conduct Authority have actually worked on AI explainability quite a bit um, because they're, they're, they fully recognize that tension between can we explain how we got to this result and can we also manage privacy and data and, and how do we do that? It's a really hard problem. And one thing I'm curious about is whether as consumers we're going to be forgiving of companies that are going to try and make mistakes mm -hmm. and learn and try and make mistakes and learn. Are we going to be forgiving? Are we going to work with them? Are we going to help them have this conversation or are we going to drop them? I, I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. Small macro point before we move on. Um, this to me, the last three stories say that everything is fintech. The biggest stories in tech are the biggest stories in fintech, <laughs> and they're the same thing. Um, I, I don't know if we've reached peak fintech or not, but um, I saw, uh, I heard something great on the TC Equity podcast. Um, they, they had one recently where uh, they said uh, calling uh, something a fintech company is like calling it an internet company. It's mm -hmm. sort of lost its relevance because everything is fintech. And that sort of um, sums up where we are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm just I'm just disappointed to have an Amazon story this week. That's all I can say. <laughs> I, 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 was, I, was, I was looking so hard to find an Amazon story. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, the next story is that HSBC and RBS are prepping new digital banking platforms. So HSBC Kinetic rolled out in beta on Monday, whilst RBS will launch Bow later this month. So HSB Kinetic will offer current accounts, overdrafts, and cash flow insights to small businesses. Um, it's expected to fully launch in the first half of 2020. You may know this by the project name Project Iceberg, which was what was sort of splashed all over the uh, mainstream media earlier this year. Um, Bo, I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you know what Bo is. Um, but for those who may have missed it, it's a retail bank that encourages customers to budget and analyzes their spending. So Peter McIntyre, head of UK small business banking HSBC, says the bank hopes to sign up hundreds of thousands of customers and roll it out to other countries where HSBC operates. Um, he says that the company is undeterred by choppy economic conditions in Britain. Whereas Bo, on the other hand, the customer deposits can be lent out across RBS. Um, and apparently it's targeting the 16.8 million Britons with less than £100 of savings. Uh, right. So incumbents have digital bank brands. Go. <laughs> I think this is, this is exciting. This is now the point where we are seeing launches. I mean, we've heard the news stories for, what, the last few years. We've heard that these things are being built, but now they are into sort of beta or potential kind of full launch almost. And um, and I think now it's the time where we're actually going to be able to see because, um, you know, there's been a lot of saying, you know, oh, they can't necessarily do this. The incumbents are really going to struggle. But but we will now get to watch and actually see this play out. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think HSBC's project sound, sounds very interesting. It sounds like it's super ambitious and, and Bo as well have a, a really clear mission statement, which is sounds like an incredibly positive one. So I think we have to kind of wait and see what happens. Do we think that maybe they're slightly too late to the market? Because both of the, the demographics that they're targeting, um, there are challenger brands in both those spaces. Um, the SME space, so um, Kinetic has launched targeting basically sole traders is, is, is what it's going for first. And I know that's the easiest way to do it, but that space is so crowded. Like I have run out of like spreadsheet room for the number of, you know, financial services firms, banks and, and neobanks and you know, e-money licensed companies trying to serve that space. Is HSBC going to be able to capture that market? Has it got something those others haven't? And the same for Bo. You know, when you look at it, it's kind of a combination between Atom and Monzo, to my mind. I mean, maybe other people have other insight, but... Is it a defensive play in that mm. case? Um, is it more of a, like, we need to keep up with the market rather than get a, get ahead of the market? If you remember about 18 months ago, we did an episode of Fintech Insider News called SME So Hot Right Now. And actually, now it's been <laughs> been very hot for a while, right? So, um, and there's something interesting about, you know, what's your strategy? Is it to um, the old Wayne Gretzky's pet father's quote, which is, do you skate to where the puck is going or do you skate to where the puck is? And this is a little bit skating to where the puck is 18 months ago. Ice hockey reference, by the way, for those yeah. who are lost. So yeah, do you go to where it's going to be in the future and recognize that it's going to take you some time to get there? Or do you go to where it is now, recognizing that the future might be a bit ahead of you? And it's an interesting strategy question, because how long have they been working on this behind the scenes? How much does it cost them? And will it succeed as a defensive play or as an aggressive play? Because I think there's something about the advantage startups have got is that the constraints they have force them to make decisions in different ways. And because they're forced to make decisions in different ways and they use open source technology stacks quite often um, that get that sort of 
classic tension. Really interesting to play out, but it's game on now. They're on the field, and uh, I hope we see more things like this because I really like the idea of there being more choice for consumers and businesses. Yeah, and also an interesting point is they're they're kind of different, right? So Bow is bright yellow. It's called Bow, and actually, unless you necessarily looked and kind of Googled your way through, you might not necessarily know it's RBS if you found Bow yourself, whereas HSBC Kinetic, it's very obviously HSBC branding. Mm -hmm. It looks like HSBC, which they've obviously taken the view, which is that's going to do us favors. You know, there's that kind of that brand recognition there. And we're going to we're going to use that. And potentially that could be the USP, right, in this crowded market mm. is that, you know, a small business likes to be able to say, mm-hmm. I, or a sole trader, I bank with HSBC, you know. I trust, um, you trust them. Yeah. You trust exactly. them. It's exactly. total reassurance. And I, I'm, I'm quite excited in one sense. I don't know whether they'll be able to mobilize mm. all the other products in the group. But if you think about what the you know the new guys on the block don't have which is decades of data all the way into mortgages savings products all that kind of stuff so um you know is that playing a longer game um and and what can they use that for and and, and particularly with b2b it's reassurance of who you're banking with and can they grow with you and provide you those debt products you need i guess Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess the interesting thing is here um, that RBS is built on a separate tech stack. Oh, sorry, Bo is built on a separate tech stack. So does that tech stack talk to RBS's tech stack? And, you know, this could be a move that we've seen um, a lot of banks in Europe have done this. Spin it out, try the tech stack out. If it works, shuffle everything over that way. Yeah. Which is is one way of playing it. It's obviously a slightly different motivation for launching the brand. But the second thing, of course, there is that, like, that's not going to talk to those decades of data because... they're not good. I'm doing that thing with my, I'm putting my fingers together and merging my fingers. It's a podcast. Nobody can see that. David always calls that the get off the planet strategy. Like what, what colony do you build that's self-sustaining off the planet? And then how do you grow that and then bring more to it? And, and I think um, given that uh, the incumbent financial institutions uh, have found that every year their uh, OPEX is increasing, not decreasing, even though they're spending CAPEX to decrease OPEX, it's going up, then they need another strategy and it needs a two-speed strategy. So so it's sensible to me that they're investigating that sort of way forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I actually think they don't have a choice. I think they have to do this. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like the traditional banks either have to try these experiments and, and hope that this is the future of their their technology, or uh, potentially acquire fintechs. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this is you know the different options. But I actually, to your point earlier, I think culture is a huge key about whether or not these are going to be successful. I mean, you can build the shiny technology, you can spend billions. Do you have the right people, the right talent, the right culture, the right environment mm-hmm. of constraints that will enable you to, to make it truly innovative and truly sort of human design? It's a talent question, yeah. Yeah, and that's something that we go into an awful lot on this podcast. Um, you know, David is David Breer is, is very, very... Um, I was trying to think of the word, impassionate um, about culture and how important it is to the success of any of these ideas. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Um, Please listen to our sponsors in the meantime. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We are hiring. Check out 11fs.com forward slash careers to find your dream new job. We have open roles in consulting across product design and tech. Uh, We have roles in my team, research and benchmarking. Uh, We have roles in our foundry team, our pulse team, our operations team, and and pretty much everywhere, actually. Um, So go check out our vacancies on 11fs.com forward slash careers now. We also have a couple opening up in the US. So if you're in New York, uh, we're hiring there too. Perfect. Let's get on with the show. All right, our next story today is that Starling has topped 1 million accounts. So the Challenger Bank set a five-year target of 800,000 accounts when it launched in 2014. The value of the bank's deposits is currently unknown. Um, Starling's last publicly disclosed total was £800 million, but it had expected to hit £1 billion when it passed 1 million accounts. 
God, that's playing with my mind, those numbers. Um, the news comes after Starling raised £30 million last month. The company plans to use that money to expand into new countries, specifically the Republic of Ireland, where it already holds an EU licence. Uh, on top of that, earlier this year, Anne Bowden, who is the CEO of the company, said that Starling would be profitable by 2020. Um, worth noting for those of you who do count numbers that Starling sits behind Monzo on 3.3 million customers and Revolut, um, which has 8 million accounts across Europe. Uh do we think these numbers are relevant or useful? Any of these numbers? None of them? All of them? Yeah, it is hard to know because as we as we kind of it's debated often as to kind of like how are they actually calculated? It's like the definitions might be slightly different. Mm. Um, we're we're big styling fans. They're, they're a massive partner for Flux, and and we love those guys. So we're happy to see you know the success. And it sounds like it's been a really you know really strong six months for them in terms of growth. Um, I think this is really really um, great. I think that's also impressive. Their their growth on the business count side. I think they're up to sort of sixty six thousand recently. Um, and so those numbers along with these numbers are suddenly kind of putting them into that kind of next level of like, okay, you know, okay, we do talk about Monzo having having the three million, but actually um, if they're playing in both those spaces, is that a really good position? I always think it's interesting as well with Starling when you look at the other stuff they're doing. So yes, they have business accounts and yes, they have retail accounts, but they also have this banking as a service platform on the back end. And I've always thought that that's almost more interesting to look at because to me, that's their differentiator. Yes, they do retail banking and yes, they do it well. Yes, they do business banking and and they do that well as well. But if you're talking about like the profitability of the company and what is the direction of the company going forward, I'm more inclined to look at the the, the sort of infrastructure play, if you like. Interesting. See, I, I'd have seen them as as an early mover into lending and their business accounts being, you know, business accounts are historically uh, a lot more profitable because of the fees involved and, and the nature and the sort of deposits and the, the size of the balances. But then, you know, is that platform something they're actively monetizing now in terms of short-term profitability or is that a really long-term valuation story? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting question, but there's we, we haven't seen the model where people do both play out. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it is super, super interesting. Uh, I like this point uh, in the, our show notes, uh, shout out to producer Laura, um, about how much impact has their TV advertising had on their growth. Um, so when we interviewed Bowden for the documentary back in July, she told us they had uh, 750,000 accounts. Now we sit here and so about three months later, and they've added another 250,000 accounts. So if you do the math, that's 250,000 accounts in three months. Monzo claims they're adding, they're gaining that many every month. So, you know, growing at different paces, but maybe getting to profitability sooner, different strategies playing out. I mean, the TV point is interesting as well because I I don't watch a lot of TV. I do watch things on sort of um, catch-up, so uh, Channel 4. um, I'm a bit of a sucker for the Great British Bake Off. Um, But (laughs) I would say I have seen Starling's TV ads. I'm not sure I've seen Monzo's TV ads. Oh, yeah, they were a while ago, and they were very different. Uh, It was kind of interesting... um, I, I wondered how much the the Starling advert felt like a bank advert. It's like, ah, oh, bank things. I saw it at first and I was like, is this Lloyd's banking group? Oh, wait, no horse. But it's There's very no horses, simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then the, uh, the kind of the Monza one felt very different. And it's sort of, there is this um, thing in the market, which is like, does Monzo feel a bit too sort of like uh, mutton dressed as lamb for you? Is it a bit too like, uh, it's a bit too shiny? Nah, I don't want that. Stallings for the grownups. And they've successfully played into that market. And and actually, there's room for that. There's room for the sober, slow and steady growth. And maybe slow and steady wins the day. Mutton dressed as lamb. I love these expressions. I'm still learning. That's <laughs> great. This is the first time I've ever heard that. Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a classic British yeah, one, isn't it? Right. You know, I think it's, it's interesting to Starling, they really did the hard work of getting the whole full banking license at the beginning. So yeah. so I think that was one of the things that they consciously decided, you know, we are going to put that time in and we're going to start a little bit later in terms of acquiring customers. And so I, I think it's really interesting. I do feel that they have a focus on long-term profitability, mm-hmm. sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know which model is going to win. And perhaps there's room for several models. I do think the banking as a service thing is a really interesting one uh, because they can actually partner with a lot of fintechs rather than, than mm-hmm. compete explicitly with them. And make money from that as well. So, you know, charging for access to their services. I think faster payments, they provide access to faster payments, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think that they're all going for exactly the same demographic. I mean, looking at a brand, they feel different. And and I think that would be quite interesting in terms of a measurement when you think about different salaries, different expenditures. I think 
Monzo and Starling have possibly some overlap. I do agree with uh, Simon that I think Monzo is going for, I think Monzo is going for friendly, easy to use, almost the building society, you know, demographic. Starling is going, we are professional and, you know, we are grown up and we are sensible, mm-hmm. but a bit different. They're a bit more Nigel Walsh, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, for those of you who don't listen to our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, please go and do so and then you will understand that comment. <laughs> um, but for me, Revolut, are totally different demographic. You know, they tend to get lumped together, but to me, Revolut sits completely outside of Monzo and Starling. You know what would be interesting data? Because you mentioned the number of customers, which is interesting, but you know, I think what would be more interesting is the deposit, the average deposits, mm. uh, because that can be an interesting indication. There was something news about that there with was. Starling a while ago, but I can't... And I, I, I don't recall the exact numbers, but I do recall that Starling had higher average deposits than yes. Monzo. But I don't know if that's changed. And, and the flow of that money, right? You know, what is the breakdown of that in terms of what people are doing with it? Because that that suggests you've got more of a grip of the market. It's also worth pointing out that Starling does pay interest on any deposits. It's the only one that does. So that kind of could um, explain why more people put more money in it. Mm. All right. Uh, moving down to uh, my favorite part of the world. The next story is that 86,400 has rolled out a digital mortgage offering. So the Australian Neobank will offer digital home loans through a network of brokers. Um, according to Business Insider, Australian customers will be uh, sorry will be able to get approved for mortgages within hours or without having to provide a single physical document. However, they do still need a referral from the broker to access the service. The project has been in the making for 18 months, so 86,400 only launched its pay and its save accounts nine weeks ago. Um, Melissa Christie, home loan lead at 86,400, says our smart technology works on the broker's behalf to make their life simpler. So basically, they've got, again, they've got a customer-facing play, pay, and they've got save. And then this is also an infrastructure play, really, because the people they're actually serving is the brokers. So you go to the broker, they say... You know, here are your details. Oh, we'll find you a mortgage. Ah, well, with 86,400, we can do it this much quicker. So, again, I think a two-pronged attack. Nobody has any thoughts on mortgages. So, (laughs) I can, I mean, I can jump in with, you know, a few things in Australia and mortgages and and the producers are staring at me going, no, don't let her do that. (laughs) She's just started again. Uh, Did you you want to jump in there? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think that it's a really interesting one because mortgages are still such a frustrating mm. <laughs> banking process from a consumer point of view. You know, payments have kind of been disrupted mm-hmm. and you know, all sorts of other things are happening ro- along the per- periphery, loyalty, this and that. Mortgages are still ridiculously painful. And, and you know, in, a, in a, an age where consumers are expecting things real time, now, efficient, consumer friendly, like this is really long overdue. I completely agree that the mortgage market is um, absolutely ripe for uh, disruption. I think um, the interesting thing as well is if you know anything about the Australian market, they have um, a property sector that's almost as overcooked as the UK was before the dreaded B word brought things back down to earth a little bit. Um, the you know property in Sydney, for example, is is you know almost as um, inflated as is in London. So. There's a question there about the, the broader home loan market, the broader mortgage market. Should people be making it easier to access mortgages? You know, what, what levels of repayment should they be? I think, you know, it's a good distribution play as well. You've got the trusted brokers getting involved in the process. I did look at it and was like, does this just avoid me having to scan all my bank statements for my mortgage application? Um, and, and, you know, how much consideration is speed when it's such a big deal doing a mortgage? Mm-hmm. And yeah, obviously there are concerns if we're, you know, if that's going through too quickly. But as a consumer, how impactful it, is it? It's interesting to me that to, for 86400, the broker is almost the customer. So we're going to make it so easy for you to do your job because the broker is taking some, not all, some of the pain away from the from the consumer. So if we make it really easy for brokers, brokers will like working with us and therefore maybe we'll get more business. And so much of the mortgage market still is broker-led, but it's very different to the trend we've seen uh, elsewhere where that sort of direct mortgage market has been sort of increasing. So um, interesting to watch this play out. Interesting to see a challenger bank get to mortgages so early. Um, not dissimilar to the play of both uh, uh, Atom and I think Metro as well, um, which is to get the I don't know if Metro does, actually. I'm not confident on that. But certainly Atom got to mortgages pretty quickly. Um, but then the market market can, mortgage market can really change. So, I mean, it's, it's a model um, that we've seen quite a lot in the particularly American uh, sort of robo-advisor or wealth tech space, if you like. We saw a lot of them go direct to consumer or direct to businesses. Uh, sorry, yeah, direct to consumer to start with. And then realized that actually an awful lot of value in what they offered was in their technology platforms, which could help existing distribution channels. So... 
Again, a lot of like uh, Wealthfront Investment, both white label their platforms, not only for, for uh, financial advisors, but also, you know, uh, Betterment in particular has turned it into um, a benefit software, really, that mm-hmm. the companies can offer Betterment, um, you know, portfolios through their, their benefits program. So um, it's not an unheard of model. I'm very impressed, as Simon said, how quickly they sort of gone, oh, okay, so we've got almost a full banking suite here. Um I think the thing to remember, of course, and we do perhaps have a tendency to forget, is how different markets are. So whilst this may be a great idea in the UK, how is it going to work in Australia, which is a little bit behind when it comes to the neobanks? They've got quite a few now, but again, they're quite early stage. Um, but we'll keep an eye on it. And I'm, and I'm intrigued by any company that can roll out a product that complex that quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of suggests as well, they sort of maybe took the Starling model and they were doing it behind the scenes whilst nobody was looking whilst they were waiting for their banking license. All right, this one hurts, okay? Nationwide customers will see overdraft interest more than double to 40%. So um, the Building Society, um, which has a banking license, they will say they're not a bank, bank, not a bank, but actually they're a Building Society with a banking license, they can do both. Um, Previously announced in July, it was hiking overdraft fees across the board to 39.9%. I mean, that's 40%, but whatever. Um, (laughs) As well as scrapping fee-free overdraft. So um, these uh, came into force on Monday and could mean up to two-thirds of nationwide current account customers will now pay more when they dip into their overdraft. Um, It is actually hugely, it's going to have a huge impact, I imagine. So despite the huge increase in overdraft rates from 18.4% to 39.9%, nationwide will no longer charge charge unarranged overdraft charges, which previously cost £5 per day, or unpaid transaction charges of up to £15 per month. Now, actually, those last two bits are things that they kind of have to do off the back of the FCA commission, so that's not them being nice. Um, Interesting, so for the kind of context, previously Nationwide's £13 a month Flex Plus packaged bank account came with a £250 fee-free overdraft, um, whilst its Flex Direct account came with a £10 buffer both of which have now been scrapped. But if you were on that Flex Plus packaged bank account, that is one hell of a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm outraged for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not a nationwide yeah. customer. Set against the context of the recent study that said um, of the banks who's winning new customers and of the banks in the UK who's losing customers. A lot of high street banks were losing customers, but nationwide were punching above their weight and still gaining. Yes, it was costing them quite a bit more to acquire than it would be the digital-only challenger banks, but people liked the brand. People trusted them. They they were the one sort of quote-unquote sort of incumbent but not that had this really interesting place in the market this sort of thing is that sort of nasty banker move that sort of bad landlord surprise that's way more than you thought it was now granted they've got a PL to run they're not charities they they they're maybe you know benefiting you somewhere else but this just does feel like wallop it also uh, sorry i think it also stands out as that i can't think of any other british bank or banking brand that has done similar recently correct me if i'm wrong but the, the the minute if everybody does it, you know, the minute um, savings in, uh, savings rates dip, every bank dips their saving rates at the same time. You know, they're all as bad as each other. But this one seems to be the only one who've gone the other way, and that makes them stand out even more. So I think I think what they're saying is that they feel this is this kind of backlash is actually them making things transparent. That the, all mm-hmm. they're really doing is saying, look, overdrafts are expensive, and actually. They're more expensive than credit cards, especially in, in this situation. And it's potentially that the reason people are kind of shocked is actually quite often for some reason people think that dipping into their overdraft is maybe not as bad as going on your credit card. And mm-hmm. that actually people often haven't realized maybe how how expensive overdrafts can be because yeah. there are quite yeah. a few expensive well, overdrafts. There was you new financial conduct uh, authority rules uh, announced in June that and Nationwide are complying with that. So mm-hmm. I think you have a really good point there. It's, it feels like wallop, but is this just going to be the first of many because of, of exactly that point? And how does it compare to Monzo's overdraft rates is what came off of my head. And I actually don't know, but I've got a feeling Monzo's overdraft rates are much, much lower. But that's a really interesting point, Regina. Are they trying to push people towards credit cards? Is this actually, you know, this is better for us as a bank and better for you as a customer kind of situation? Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's an interesting one. I, I think that they need to... The best, the best sort of uh, approach now, if there has been outrage about this, is to have a very open conversation with their customers. I mean, mm-hmm. I, that's key. Like, you know, the, the the 
the jargon that you read at the beginning. Sorry. I, I, no, no, no. I mean, it's not your fault that you were reading. You were reading what they had written. I think it's really important that you write things in human language and you com- communicate mm-hmm. them properly. And and then you build that trust with the consumer. Then they understand. Okay, where is this thirty nine point nine percent coming from? Mm-hmm. What does this mean? How does that compare to the five pounds a day that I would be charged? That kind of a conversation, I, I feel like, would be incredibly mm-hmm. beneficial. Could help them sort of. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very well saying you're being sorry. It's a very well saying you're being transparent by saying this is how much you would have paid, you know, with the five pound fees and everything on it. But if you say that in such a way that everybody's like, I'm sorry, what? Was that even was that we we have the term, I think a lot of people use it, legalese, you know. Yeah. Nobody except a lawyer would understand it. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it's about saying, look, this is this is the cost, but um, as you say, should there then be sort of a follow up? It's like this is the cost. So actually it may be better to, you know, do this or um, this is coming into place in a few months, so wanna let you know and, and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think to be fair to nationwide, I think they have they've made quite a big movement in um, I think kind of partnering with different fintechs that are really about money management and, and helping certain people especially at the low incomes um, to think about kind of how they manage their money better so they're definitely aware of it and they're definitely trying mm. I guess it's, it's kind of they're going to get a bad rap on this one because the, the overall figures sound really scary. And it's dangerous to go first on something yeah. even when you're complying with regulation. But we've seen uh, the story uh, sort of like a couple of weeks ago with Tom Blomfeld from Monzo. Sometimes complying with the rules makes you the bad guy. And that this may be a case of yeah. that. Yeah, is it that? And um, just to add to your point there, Roisin, I think Nationwide are the biggest sponsors or, or the main sponsor behind Open Banking for Good. That's right, yeah. Which is a campaign to use Open Banking to help people better manage their money, to help them save more, to avoid, you know, getting into debt or problem debt. Or, yeah, problem debt's probably the, the right way of saying it. There are obviously occasions where using a credit card or an overdraft is appropriate. Yeah, and they, they are putting their own money and investments into that. So, so they obviously see long-term, you know, benefits in that space for definite. Maybe it's um, maybe a comms challenge then, rather than an actual policy challenge. Press release rewrite, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's interesting, uh, even though the you can see, I think Roshin pointed out many examples. Sarah, you just pointed out some examples of where they're doing really good stuff. The way in which the press release has come across and the way in which it's been picked up is it's it's not what you communicate; it's the way you communicate Mm -hmm. it. Which was your point, wasn't it? Which is that uh, there's something that the challengers have done quite well, especially Monzo and Starling to a lesser extent, is explain their rationale for something and do it in human language. I think that's such a great point. Uh, trying to have that old PR'd approach mm-hmm. is actually a rep risk. It's a reputational risk to try and do PR the old-fashioned way. Right. Well, um, we'll wait and see what the impact is for the next when the next CAS uh, figures come out. So, uh, and finally, this story is that Harrods has limited its Christmas grotto to big spenders. So only customers who spent at least £2,000 I assume in the last year, were invited to visit Father Christmas. Also, I'm just pointing out that we're recording this in November, but okay, fine. Um, Tickets cost £20 per child. So you spent £2,000 at Harrods in the last year, and then you've got to pay £20 per child. (laughs) And they're restricted to Harrods Rewards customers at tier green two and above. Now, I have no idea what that means. I'm assuming it's like being silver status on BA or something. Um, Public outcry ensued, and Harrods agreed graciously to allow 160 lower spending families to visit the Swarovski crystal encrusted grotto. These 160 tickets will allegedly cost Harrods £3,200. The 170-year-old shop is expected to make more than £84,000 from this grotto over the holiday season. Um, Wealthy families will still account for 96.4% of Father Christmas's time. I'm glad that he's done the maths. Um, For those who don't know, I guess most people will, but Harrods is a department store in the UK. It's a luxury department store. Um, They've had this grotto since 1955. Um, Back then it was free. My mum used to be taken to Harrods every Christmas by her father to go and see Father Christmas. And it was like a, a, you know, a treat. It was the Christmas treat. Um, I don't know. Is this like grinchy? It doesn't feel very in the spirit of Christmas. (laughs) It's like, you must have this much money to go on the Father Christmas ride. It's It's not even like £20 per ticket. I sort of understand that, but you can only pay £20 per ticket if you've already spent £2,000. That's actually a £2,020 ticket. It's incredibly grinchy. It's it's (laughs) downright grinchy. And it's also, you know, it's very... Or exclusive. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also very um, short-term, sort of, Mm -hmm. the very short-term mentality. So I don't think it'll impact them in the short term. They're going to make, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds off of this, you know, this Christmas grotto that's great. The, all of their rich customers will come and take their kids there. It's going to be great. In the long term, who defines what's cool? Not those people going to Harrods. And do, do you, <laughs> it's not. It's everybody else, right? It's, it's other parts of society that can't afford it. And that's what people follow. So if they continue to do this, that elitism is not going to help them. It's just occurred to me, do you think there'll be a black market? 
Like for the, <laughs> yeah. the company, uh, the people who spent two thousand pounds and like were like, oh god, let's get four twenty pound tickets and sell them on eBay for a hundred pounds each. Yeah, so it's funny. I, don't I, know. <laughs> I think it's a funny story in a way because it's like it's not really a moral thing. Like um, I saw someone had a quote saying like Harrods has given into the commercialization commercialization of Christmas. You think well, they're a shop? Like <laughs> that's literally what they do, commerce. Like <laughs> it's like that's always going to be their objective. I think where they've they've hurt themselves is because you say the legacy pieces that people have gone there for years they've got used to that idea and actually in a way Harris benefits off the fact that we go there and we look at it and we think we can't afford that but mm-hmm. wish I could and you walk around and that's maybe what some people that's the only time they maybe go visit Harrods is actually that but it, mm-hmm. it retains that kind of brand because it allows people through the doors to go and do the Christmassy stuff um, but maybe if they start seeming too exclusive it's like well actually that damages them I don't know it was our own Chris Leo on Slack who said uh, the true meaning of Christmas unfettered capitalism <laughs> yeah obviously <laughs> crystals everywhere <laughs> <laughs> he nailed it. The other thing from Chris Leo, shout out, dude, um, is it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a poor man to enter the kingdom of parents. <laughs> Deep. I think Chris has got too much time. What is that? <laughs> I, I think Chris is just full of lols, bless him. Um, it's interesting as well, just to your point, Rashi, and it's sort of a, a sensible point. I wonder if it will hurt them kind of, whether it would hurt them commercially, because those people like my mum who was taken when she was a kid um, yeah they didn't go and buy a Swarovski handbag but they would come away with a little it would be a Harrods yeah. teddy bear or yeah. a shortbread yeah yeah, something or <laughs> a token they're going to yeah. halve their shortbread sales yeah well yeah. <laughs> devastating genuinely might be a problem I don't know there's, there's an unfinally story BBC News headlines shortbread sales <laughs> shortbread, shortbread and Earl Grey tea has <laughs> and, gone uh, and Harrods flags or badges can't we know. be any more British right now yeah. <laughs> I just love the fact that kids might be standing outside Harrods collecting receipts, maybe flux yeah, on, right. on, yeah. on Harrods, just trying to rack them up to get in. Wow, What's that was the a challenge of money flux crossover. I know, Seeing that one, up, But what's it? the Challenger Bank equivalent in the in the retail industry that's going to disrupt Harrods? Well, um, Tandem Bank <laughs> yeah. owns Harrods yeah, yeah, yeah. Bank, bought Harrods ah, Bank, so right. it has. So Tandem Bank has Harrods right. Bank customers on its books. I don't know how that works, but there must be some kind of connection. All right, um, that wraps up this week's news show. So thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find about more about you, Will? Um, so you can head to Twitter, Rooster Money HQ, um, or uh, roostermoney.com. Thank you. Smriti? You can just find me at Smriti Vikari on LinkedIn. I'm not cool enough to have any other <laughs> handles. <laughs> no, that's fine. We once had somebody who was like, can I give them my phone number or address? And I was like, please don't do that. I wouldn't. <laughs> um, Rasheen, how about you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Rasheen Levine, or at Rasheen Levine on Twitter, um, or check out Flux at tryflux.com. Perfect. And Simon? Uh, at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter, or just Simon at 11fs.com if you want to have a chat. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky, or you can find me hosting the InsureTech Insider podcast, our sister podcast, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, so what do you think of today's stories? Do let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to vote for us in the British Banking Awards. We'd really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.